When I was a, a young guy getting started in business, there was a man who was kind of an inspiration to me and a mentor to me named Fred Smith. Fred had had a great career in business himself, and then he had become a consultant to a few small corporations like Mobile and Caterpillar. And uh, he was awarded the Lawrence Apley Award of the American Management Association. So he's a very brilliant kind of business thinker. And one day he told me this. He said, you know, Kevin, over the years I've had many business leaders, CEOs and chairmen and board leaders and so forth come to me and say, Fred, would you, would you help me with this business problem? I, I, I don't know how to restructure my business and I need your wisdom or I, I don't know how to attract the best talent for this next phase of our, our business or I don't know how to transition into this next season of a new leadership team. Would you help me with that? But he said, never once in all those years have I had a business leader come to me and say, Fred, I have a slippage in my character would you help me work on that? And he said, and yet, every time I have seen a business leader fail badly, there has always been a slippage in character. What is it about us, friends, that we're very happy to work on our skills and sharpen our techniques and take care of the outer stuff, but we do not want to acknowledge or admit that there is a slippage in our character and work on that inner stuff? And sometimes we can be in a situation where everyone around us sees what's going on in our life, but we are still in denial about that. For example, maybe in, in your life, your friends have begun to notice something that when they're with you, it's not very long before you make a cutting remark about someone else. And they are starting to see the truth of something that you are still in denial about, which is that actually you have an unaddressed envy in your life. You envy people with more money than you. You envy people with a boyfriend or girlfriend that you don't have and you wish you had or a spouse who's more supportive or, or children who seem like they're achieving more fully than your own. And that comes out in that way. Maybe your friends have started to notice that occasionally, just occasionally, a story that they got from you differs a little bit from a story they got from somebody else and it was supposed to be the same story. And what they're picking up on is something that you're still in denial about, which is that you have such a high need to be liked by others that when you tell the story, you will shade it based on who's hearing the story and not based on how it actually went down. Do you see how this works in our lives? Because denial is, is strong and it's destructive and it is universal. And whenever denial is going on about a slippage in character, other people get hurt. Relationships get damaged. And it is the same thing in our relationship with God, yours and mine. And so I want to ask and try to answer with you this morning a question that I don't know that there are many questions more important than this one for your spiritual life. And that is this. How would denial creep into my relationship with God? Because there's something about it, isn't it, that we don't see it. It's very hard for us to see, and so we need to know, like, what would it look like? What would it sound like inside our head if we were getting into a place of denial about the slippage in our character and thereby damaging our relationship with God? And then, what do we do about it? This is the essential, sort of foundational, beginning step of Christianity. 
We're starting a series in Romans, and when Paul lays out the heart of his Christian message in the first three chapters, he answers this question. What is it that Christianity solves? What is the basic problem of human life that is so desperate that we need the Savior, Jesus Christ? And it goes right to the heart of this, these three great denials that creep into our life. Let's look at them together, shall we? The, the first great denial that we may be experiencing is that we deny this truth. We deny, I can know God well enough to obey him. That's true. I can know God well enough to obey him, but we don't want to accept that, many of us. And in fact, I would say this is perhaps the favorite denial of those who are unchurched. They'll, they'll say to me, and, and maybe they've said to you, things along these lines. They'll say, well, well gosh, how could anybody really know that there's a God? It's, it's, it's kind of vapor-like. It's not something you can prove empirically. You cannot demonstrate it to my absolute satisfaction. It's like the flying spaghetti monster. You make these claims, but how am I supposed to know? It's, it's, it's not possible to really know. Or, or, or and then you try to say to them, well, actually, it, it wouldn't be possible to know except that God has revealed himself, and he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ and, and in the, 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 the Holy Scriptures and, and through the preaching of that. And they go, yeah, but what about all those people who haven't heard? Are you really going to say that millions of people around the world are going to some kind of hell because you're, you didn't, you're God? They didn't even have a chance to hear? Right? We've all, we've all heard this or we've thought this. And Paul says, Really? Because that's not how it really is. Turn to Romans 1 and verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And here's why, verse 19. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. How did he do that? Well, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So Paul says, they have no excuse for not knowing God. What God has done is he has given this outside source called creation that is available to every person in all cultures at all times and said through that creation, if you'll just like even begin to think or begin to notice it, you will see that there is some kind of there's some kind of intelligence. There's some kind of being or force behind all this. Yet, how could you even avoid it? I don't know if any of you have heard of a dark park. I hadn't. There's until this week. There's only 11 of them in the country. But what they are are special preserves in which almost all light is excluded and they're, they're set up in remote areas so that you can go there and see the stars the way the stars were meant to be seen. And so there's one up near Mackinac in Michigan, and a friend of mine is going up there. It's 600 acres. And you have to arrive by 9 o'clock at night and, and turn off your headlights. And then you cannot leave until after 11 o'clock. So there's two hours of absolute darkness. You're not allowed to use your iPhone or your iPad or flashlight or any of that because what it's designed to do is that you'll look up and you go, whoa, I've never seen a meteor shower like that. Whoa, I've never seen Mars that red. I've never seen that blue-white light from Spica coming like that. And, and any person in any culture, when they look up, they ought to go, wow, that was there before I got here. And that's going to be here when I'm gone. 
And especially those of us in, in, in a scientifically trained culture, we go, man, the light that's hitting my retinas right now started streaming to me hundreds of millions of years ago. And I'm here to see it. What kind of in, being of power, of longevity, and, and it appears to be a being of creativity, look at the beauty of this. And, and the galaxies are, are in numbers too vast for my mind to take in. And they're spinning about and hurtling apart from each other at a speed I cannot even understand. And yet it all holds together. And this God is apparently interested in life. Because here on earth, we're the perfectly distant from the sun with a perfect rotational axis and speed such that there's air we can breathe and water we can drink. And Paul says, really? You can't know that there's a God Oh no, verse 121. They knew God. But they wouldn't worship him as God. The, the, the idea is they refused or even give him thanks. Now why would people do that? Well, because if you start to follow the logical implications that there's a God, then you might have to get to know what this God wants. And what this God wants may be something you are not willing or prepared to pay. And so you go about life as though there is no God because then what that does is I don't have to worry about other people that he's interested in since he created them too. I can just follow my own sort of drives. I can go after what I want and what's right for me. And other people, well, too bad for them. 129. Does this ring familiar? Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, Malicious behavior, gossip. You ever worked in an office where gossip was out of control? <laughs> they are backstabbers. Been backstabbed? Haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. You been around somebody who's full of themselves? They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. Some of you have suffered so deeply because people broke their promises to you. They're heartless and they have no mercy. And you know what? Look at verse 32. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. How do they know? Because not only has God given this unchanging, always available source of creation, this external source to show his power, he's also given this unchanging internal source called conscience, a moral law, a moral compass that is undeniable, and everybody's got it. The Yale University Infant Cognition Center, I didn't even know there was one, but I was reading about it. They did this fascinating study with babies, get this, as old as six to ten months, and they would set the baby in front of this railroad track, kind of a toy railroad track. And they had this railroad train with kind of big, kind of human eyes, right? And this train is going around the track and it's trying to get up this big hill and it can't quite get up the hill. So then there are two other types of trains that are in this little play thing that they act out for the babies. One is the helper train and the helper train comes along and helps that train get up over the hill. And then there is the bully train and the bully train comes and tries to knock that train back down and back down off the track. Then they stop that little play thing and they let the babies play with whatever toy they want every time they go for the helper train. A baby as young as six months knows, I want the helper train on my track. I want to be the helper train. That's the way to live. That's what I want. I don't like the bully train. 
If a six-month-old can know right from wrong, are we really going to say, oh, I had no idea. Morality is a social construct. Who could really know? And we retreat behind this kind of comfortable agnosticism that everybody respects and thinks is intellectually brilliant. But what's so often going on is, I'm not willing to pay the price to change. I want to be in denial that there's a God I can know well enough to obey. Well, friends, let's not beat up the unchurched, shall we? Because the favorite denial of the churched is the next one, which is this. We deny the truth that I may be religious, but I'm just as bad and I have no excuse. Hello. I may be religious, but the truth is I'm just as bad and I have no excuse. That is exactly what Paul tells us here. He says... In chapter 2, verse 1, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. Paul's saying, look, I gave everybody creation to show that I'm a God of power. I gave everybody conscience to show that there's a moral law that matters and that I care about the people I've created. But I gave you, you who have the benefit of the scriptures and the sacred writings, They got a 60-watt light bulb. You got a 2,000-watt stage floodlight. And really, are you still going to use religion as a shield to pretend, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person over here? Did you know it is totally possible to come to church and, 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 and enjoy the sermon and not change? It is totally possible to come and learn theological truths and not work on yourself. You can come here and clap along to the music and not really get any better. You can give in the offering plate and you can still walk out the Res Cafe after the service and pretend you're better than you are. And then you can even try to do that to God and say, uh, you pretend like you're so much better than you are before him as if he's really, really going to be fooled by that. And yet it is totally possible to use religion as a shield to prevent having to do the hard work of life change. And that ought to frighten us. A friend of mine is a Presbyterian pastor, and he was telling me about a friend of his who was also a Presbyterian pastor. We'll call that other pastor Mark. And he began to notice that Mark really was kind of cold in the way he interacted with his wife. And Mark didn't talk about her much, but he did talk very positively, and his eyes kind of lit up when he was talking about this woman in his church. And finally, my friend couldn't take it anymore, and he went to Mark and took the risk, the huge social risk, and said, look, I don't want to jeopardize our friendship, but I just have to say, I notice you're getting closer and closer to this woman in your church, and you're getting more and more distant, it seems to me, from your spouse, and I'm afraid you're going to make a terrible mistake. And Mark said, oh, come on, my people will understand. They will understand that the demands of ministry are such that I cannot have a spouse as unsupportive as mine is. And they will understand that I need a soulmate who truly understands me the way this new woman does. And so he went off and divorced his wife and married this woman. And yeah, his people understood and they fired him immediately as they should. What is it inside ourselves that will even take something as good as religion and the revelation of the truth of God and somehow use it as a shield to pretend that we don't really have to change? And Paul says, as the concluding verses that kind of summarize his first three chapters here in Romans, you know what? Everyone is in, a, in trouble. As the scriptures say, chapter 3, verse 10, this is not in your bulletin, no one is righteous, not even one. No one's truly wise. No one's seeking God. All have turned away. 
All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. But there's another problem. (laughs) And I don't know how much more we can take this morning, but there's a third great denial. If the second denial is the truth that I may be a believer, but I'm just as bad and I have no excuse, the third great denial is this, that God will judge everyone's secret life. We deny that truth. Everybody does that. Believer, unbeliever, we deny that God will judge everyone's secret life. And yet, could Paul be any clearer when he says in chapter 2, verse 16, this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. One time I was at a wedding, and uh, after the wedding, I was in the back with the groomsmen, and I was joking it up with the groom and, and talking, you know, uh, kind of like guys in the locker room after the big game with all the groomsmen. And this person came running back into the back room, and they're like, turn off your mic, turn off your mic. Every word you're saying is broadcast out in the sanctuary. And all of a sudden, my blood ran cold. Because I was like, what did I say, what did I say, what did I say? Did I say anything that was kind of unkind? Did I, did I say something that was uh, uh, sort of just crude or, or stupid? And what frightened me was I knew that was entirely possible. Well, guess what, friends? Every word you utter, every thought and intent of your heart is broadcast directly into the throne room of God. There's not a word that's hidden. And Jesus said, by every idle word, we'll be condemned. And that is so frightening that we can't handle that. And we go, la, 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 la. Oh, God is a God of grace and mercy, which is true. And therefore, he will not judge me. Not true. Paul says, Romans 2, verses 5 through 8, Because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. I would go so far as to say that if you have a sin that is kind of a repetitive sin in your life, it is almost certain that you are being influenced in one way or another by one of these denials. You're saying, oh, oh, who could know what God really wants? Morality is so complex. And really, you know, this situation is not so clear-cut. It can't all be black and white. And so you're justifying, you're rationalizing what it is that you're doing or want to do. Or, or, or you know, or maybe the, the, the denial is, is somewhat different. You go, well, I may not be the best person. I, I get that. I'm fully prepared to admit that. But at least I'm not as bad as that person over there, which is true. You're probably not. But is that the issue? What's going on inside you? Do you see how this works out in our lives? Now, what do we do? What do we do? Since denial is destructive and strong and it's universal and it's each one of us and it affects our relationship with God, is there any hope for us? Yes. And in the sermons to come in Romans, there will be good news upon good news upon good news of how God has addressed these very challenges through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But even embedded in this text in which Paul describes our predicament, he gives us the word of hope and a way way out, a first step toward freedom. Would you look with me at chapter 2, verse 4? He says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? There is a reason the full wrath and judgment of God has not yet been revealed, and it is because he's wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient. He doesn't want you to go through that 
if you are still in a place of denial and refusal to turn from the sin that's in your heart. Friends, the opposite of denying is admitting. The best recovery program ever, which was based on Christian principles, starts with this step, AA, step one. The words are, we admitted. We came out of our denial and we admitted. What did we admit? We admitted we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. And you and I, our lives start to get better when we, when we stop the denial and when we come into a place of admission and we say, you know what? This is going on in my life and it's got to change. I've got a duplicity in my life. I've got a private obsession. I can no longer live the outside life and the hidden life anymore. Or we go, you know what, I stood up before God and many witnesses and promised fidelity to my spouse, and if you saw where my mind and, and, and my eyes have gone, you would question, what happened to those vows? I have this low-burning anger, and it keeps coming out at people, including my own children, and I don't want to deal with it. What is it that you need to admit to God this morning, and you need it to the people you've hurt? Because the first step toward freedom is that when you admit and you turn from your sin and turn toward a God who's wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient. Now, friends, this is hard news, but I'm telling you, if we will accept the bad news, it will lead us to the good news. If we're willing to kneel down, God will raise us up. Back in February, I was quite angry at someone, and I, I challenged him. I criticized him very hard, and I did it in a public way. And you know what? My conscience didn't bother me one bit because I knew I was right and they were wrong. And then the clock started ticking. One month, two months, three months, four months. On Friday afternoon, Karen was running some errands in a store and I was sitting in the car waiting for her to come out and this little thought came to me that said, did you do that in the right way? Did you go to them first and ask what their sort of side was to this and, and did you really hear them out? And I was like... No, no, no. It was like a fly buzzing around my head, and I didn't want to deal with that, and so I kind of pushed it away. And a few minutes later, it came back. So finally, I was like, okay, okay, okay. So when Karen comes out, I'm just going to run this by her, and I know she's going to say, don't be so overscrupulous. This happens to everybody. So I said, hon, here's the thing, and I've been, I've been feeling like maybe I didn't handle this very well, and that I actually need to apologize to this person and ask them to forgive me. Uh, what do you think? Oh, yeah. like so I uh, the only way I still can contact this person is email so I went I went home and I, I wrote an email you know it took me three drafts to get to the point where all the denial was finally stripped out and all the good reasons why I did it in the way I did it were gone and there was just a naked admission of truth I hurt you I was unfair to you I didn't give you the chance to speak into my life before I went off and did this, and I'm really sorry. I harmed your reputation. Please forgive me. Oh, friends, it is so, so hard to admit, but if you'll do it, it's your first step into freedom. Would you stop the denial today, and would you come by the Spirit of the living God into a new place in which you admit and you return to the Lord? He is wonderfully kind, he is tolerant, and he is patient with you.